We recently asked a couple hundred of you emerging biotech leaders about your go-to sources of information when you face tough professional challenges. Your top response wasn't webinars, it wasn't scientific journals, it wasn't trade shows, it wasn't even consultants. Far and away, you said you most often turn to your peers for trusted insight. Enabling a community of peers is what the Business of Biotech podcast is all about. It's also what our new Business of Biotech newsletter is all about. Peer-driven content, no strings attached, delivered to your inbox once a month. Go to bioprocessonline.com backslash B-O-B to subscribe. The Business of Biotech is produced by Bioprocess Online, part of the Life Science Connect community with support from Cytiva. Cytiva also demonstrates its commitment to the leaders of new and emerging biopharma at cytiva.com backslash emerging biotech. Check that out. It's anecdotal, but in my experience, scientists hold a healthy degree of skepticism toward the role of machine learning in biopharma drug discovery. As it should be, given the nature of a business where next-level human scrutiny and interrogation are primary to the job. On the other hand, there's a growing throng of startup biopharma companies to which machine learning is the cornerstone of discovery efforts. My guest on today's show is founder and CEO of a company intent on marrying the best of those perspectives, combining the best of human ingenuity and machine intelligence. The company is Lab Genius, and it's developing what it calls a smart robotic platform named Eva that's capable of designing, conducting, and learning from its own experiments in an effort to discover new therapeutic antibodies. Importantly, it's applying that platform to the development of its own internal pipeline of therapeutic candidates. The CEO is Dr. James Field, and I'm thrilled that he's agreed to join us today for the show. Dr. Field, welcome. Thanks very much for having me on the show. It's exciting to have you. I, uh, I'm excited to have this conversation. We've been having a lot more of these AI ML uh, discussions on the podcast with companies that are um, you know, either jumping in as a, as a platform developer or jumping into AI and ML from the perspective of a therapeutics developer. And it seems uh, to me that for the past several years, like machine learning was kind of coming, right? It was coming to drug discovery. People were talking about its uh, the, the potential of its applicability. Then uh, for some time, some folks seem to be dabbling in it uh, a little bit at the surface level. Uh, and, and all at once, uh, very recently, it's seemingly fundamental to drug discovery for so many young companies. Um, so I want your perception on that. Uh, obviously, I, I'm, I'm going to ask that question knowing that you may have a bit of a bias. Uh, but is this is this hype fueled perception, or is there is there real is there something real behind this this perception that uh, ML has become fundamental to 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 new drug discovery companies? Yeah, it's super interesting, isn't it? So I think you're definitely right that the application of machine learning or computational methods to the drug discovery process. I mean, that, that's definitely not new. But the thing that's changed is it feels like there's been this sea change now where. It's now universally acknowledged that the the deep integration of of machine learning and and computational methods into every stage of the drug discovery process is now an inevitability rather than maybe just a possibility. That being said, I I think we're actually just at the very start of the technology adoption curve. And and it's interesting to to think about this when you you ask that question, uh, folks have been, as, as you said, like dabbling in this space for a while. So, so I think you know, one question to ask here is why, why are we not further ahead? Um, and and, and, and for, I guess from my perspective here, it all boils down to the availability of, of we, what we call machine learning uh, grade data. And 
anyone from the computational sphere uh, will have heard the old adage, garbage in, garbage out. But I think yeah. it really applies to, to the world of, of drug discovery here as well. Um, and for the majority of problems that drug hunters need to solve, the real big issue is that there are no readily available data sets of the requisite quality uh, for, for machine learning. Um, and and what, what's the impact of this? Well, if you want to ask some of the answers, some of the most interesting and potentially impactful problems in drug discovery, then it means you actually have to generate new data and ensure that from the outset it's collected and, and it's that, that data is structured uh, with machine learning in mind. So I think the thing that's happened is that there is now this... Um, this acknowledgement that machine learning is going to touch every stage of the drug discovery process. And the race is now on uh, for folks to develop these engines that can generate this machine learning grade data, you know, at the right throughput. And and, yeah. and that's really, it's really not trivial. Um, it requires a lot of integration, not only from sort of the data generation perspective and the machine learning perspective, but also around data capture, storage, processing, et cetera. And I think that that's the reason that we're, that we're not sort of further along in, 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 in that process. Yeah. From your perspective, uh, just follow on to that sort of garbage in, garbage out comment that you made and the starting point of, of the data that uh, companies are are, are using and, and playing with. Um, I've had discussions with companies uh, who are playing in the space who um, are, are attempting to leverage great, big, uh, publicly accessible data in, in target discovery and so on. And I've had conversations with companies who, uh, on the other hand, are using uh, very proprietary internal data and sort of limiting uh, th- their uh, application to that. Um, you know, obviously different applications, so it's sort of a big question to answer. But what's your perspective on sort of that starting point of, of, of data in, in drug discovery? Is it is it big data? Is it proprietary, you know, smaller da- data sets? Does, I, does it I've- depend? Yeah, well, I think that a lot of the innovations that we've seen in the early, this early part of the the AI adoption curve has been around where folks have been able to jump straight in with pre-existing data sets and, and do something interesting with that. And mm-hmm. you know, obviously, there's been a lot of work done around um, answering questions around how proteins fold um, using some of these methods and, and pulling some of those large open data sets there. Um, so they, they, those open data sets definitely have sort of utility and they help us to answer certain questions. From my perspective, some of the most interesting questions, um, the data doesn't actually exist yet, or where it does exist, it doesn't uh, exist in the right quantity or quality um, uh, on, on the web. And, and so that's where this real challenge now comes in, where if if as drug hunters, we want to answer the most interesting questions, we've got to build the engines that can then generate uh, the, the requisite requisite levels of data. And, and, and then you can sort of go a layer deeper there and, and actually say, that, that look, some of the techniques and approaches that you might use for these kind of you know large open data sets, maybe that's very applicable to, to, to those sorts of problems. But actually, there's a whole other branch of machine learning, which is much more suited to addressing the challenge of how you deal with these smaller data sets and how you search uh, and, and explore um, uh, drug design space using using small data sets and, and, and efficiently running that process. And, and I guess... The, the point I'm trying to make here is is that we'll see the application of machine learning across every stage of the drug process, answering all six different types of questions. And we've only just really begun to to answer a few of the low hanging uh, fruits there. And I think the next few years of uh, for the industry will really be around how do we start to grapple with some of the harder questions where you can't just um, sit down and, and open your laptop and apply an existing machine learning approach or develop a new machine learning approach. It'll be around how do you generate the right type of data sets um, in order to, to solve some of these hard problems. 
Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. So, so that's sort of a big, big picture kind of global level set. Tell us about uh, the, the ML technology that lab genius is developing. Uh, I mean, generally what, what does it do? How's it work? Uh, yeah. So, so we're one of these groups where, where the problems that we wanted to answer, unfortunately there, there weren't the available data sets to, to, okay. to go out and, and to sort of, you know, pick from the internet and, and start the work there. So the problem space that we're interested in, um, is is obviously in the protein therapeutic space, specifically the antibody therapeutic space. Um, we're not interested in predicting how uh, a protein folds. We're not interested in uh, predicting how a protein binds to another protein. What we're really interested in um, is using machine learning to predict and understand how a protein design impacts the way that that molecule will perform in the context of a very disease-relevant cell-based assay. Um, and, and the reason that, that that's very interesting is, is that uh, historically running those sorts of experiments uh, is exceptionally low throughput. So you can only gather a small number of data points here. And so this is where we feel that machine learning has uh, the biggest potential um, to, to provide uh, an advantage in the drug discovery process. And so the sorts of application spaces we're talking about here is, you know, how do you develop um, multi-specific, multivalent antibody therapeutics that really have quite complex mechanisms of action. And what you're trying to understand there is if you pull many different levers in parallel in terms of how that molecule's designed in terms of its geometry, its valency, its affinity, um, its topology, et cetera, how, how do those impact on, on its performance? And we're not just talking about the performance of one property here. We're talking about the performance of, of several properties. And this is the big challenge in drug discovery, specifically in protein engineering, where historically, the way in which protein engineers had to engineer these molecules is that you would sequentially optimize one property after another. And the issue there is you optimize for one thing and then you've actually inadvertently de-optimized for another. And then you've got to try to, to try to address that. And the beauty of this approach is that by generating data for each of those features of interest, we can independently create these computational models that are predictive of those. And then we optimize across them uh, all in parallel. The big challenge there, though, is around how do you generate that data at the right quality, at the right throughput, at the right speed, et cetera. And so there's been a lot of um, <laughs> a lot of innovation and engineering around how we solve um, those particular problems here at LabGenius. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, are you a computational guy or are you a biology guy? Or are you both? Uh, <laughs> both and neither. So when I was doing my <laughs> when I was doing my PhD, I was. Um, I was lucky enough to be one of the first um, cohorts in, in in synthetic trained trained synthetic biologists, I should say. So Imperial College, which is the university down the road here in in London, mm -hmm. um, I had a very early program, a PhD program in in, in synthetic biology, and I, I was really excited. Signed up to that um, and and got into the lab, uh, and and then none of my experiments worked. And in in the time between, you know, I had experiments failing, I'd sit down and, and I really had to make progress for my PhD. And I thought, oh, goodness, the only way I'm going to do this is, is if I do, if I apply some computational methods. Um, and, and so actually managed to sort of teach myself to code uh, 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 whilst doing the PhD. But of course, now, you know, within the business that we are today, you know, 50, 50 person company, we have much, much better protein engineers and uh, much better computational people than myself. Yeah, that's uh, and you know er, in the early days of conversations that I was having with with companies who were as I said starting to dabble in, in computational, one of the I guess human challenges, in, internal management challenges that I often encountered, 
um, that you just you just kind of reminded me of this conversation uh, was the the marriage of of the people. You know, you bring you can bring computational folks and you bring traditional kind of wet lab scientists folks together, and they speak different languages. You know, they've they've they come from completely different walks of of education. And I know that the education systems generally are starting to get better at marrying those. You know, uh, in 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 uh, in graduate school and beyond. Um, but do, do you, has that been a, a challenge for, for you and lab genius at all? I mean, have you sort of seen that sort of physical human challenge of marrying these two mindsets? You know, I think you really hit the nail on the head there. From my perspective, you know, this is much harder than solving any of the scientific or engineering challenges. And, and it's universal among, amongst all of these companies who are trying to apply machine learning to, to the world of drug discovery. When I started this company, I, I thought, you know, I thought we were trying to solve a, uh, an engineering, a, a, um, maybe computational problem, maybe a scientific problem. Actually, we're, you know, a major part of this is an organizational engineering challenge. Um, and, and you know, I think actually being a startup gives you some really nice advantages over maybe some of the larger incumbents in the sense that rather than having different teams that are siloed, you know, in, in different parts of parts of the world, you can get everybody in one room, uh, in one office. And it's only through that really, really close collaboration um, in that cross-functional way can you really start bridging um, uh, the divide between some of some of these different domains, um, and and the reason the reason that's so important for for a company like Lab Genius is, as I say, you can think of this technology stack that we're building a little bit like a pyramid, where right at the top you have you know the data analysis and the machine learning, and, and but the real foundation that that sits on is the ability to generate data, to capture and store it, to process it, um, and and again, if you can't do any of those steps. Um, then, then the machine learning isn't going to perform as you need it to. And at each of those steps, you have to have really, really tight integration between the domain experts. And the domain experts for the data generation size side are not the domain experts, obviously, on the machine learning side. Um, and so from something just as simple as how do you structure and design an experiment, if you were to do that in the conventional way, the conventional way in which maybe like a, a trained biologist would do it, you wouldn't necessarily include include all of the control Cs that uh, that the, the controls that are and QCs that are absolutely essential for allowing the normalization um, and and the noise reduction that you require for a machine learning approach. Um, so it's it's definitely non-trivial. Uh, it's very hard to re-engineer existing processes and say a big pharma company to it to achieve this kind of um, uh, to this marriage of, of the two domains. And so I really think that. Small startups, biotechs are actually in, at an advantage here, um, and really kind of need to lean into that to, because because you know it, the field is moving so quickly, um, and there is there is so much competition. You absolutely have to make sure that you know you're pulling every lever that you can to stay ahead. Yeah, can can you share any um, any advice maybe for enabling that kind of cross <laughs> the collaboration or cross mentality required? I mean, you just throw these people in a room and tell them to figure it out and to till, till everybody's tame. <laughs> and has it figured out, then you open up the door and say, okay, what'd you figure out? Yeah, I think there's the, the biggest challenge here is there's a bit of a cold start problem where where, you know, um when it, when you have a when you have a like a small, a very, very small team, um, you, you can't necessarily uh, uh bridge all of the the different functions um adequately. And so you have to have to find these incredible people who have that kind of contextual contextual awareness so that they they themselves can can bridge them. And those people are are you know fairly fairly rare and unique. And so mm -hmm. I would say, you know, when starting a business, you absolutely have to make sure uh that that you have these folks, these multidisciplinary folks who who have experience not only with 
uh, uh, the, the industry of drug discovery itself, but with those deep technical domains. And then as you start to grow the org, um, people can become a little bit more specialized. But getting the timing of that right uh, is absolutely critical. Um, yeah. Because if, if if you're not fast enough, you fail to go deep enough, um, and and obviously if you're too slow, you, you have have a similar set of challenges. Right. Yeah. So, uh, how would you characterize for me, uh, Lab Genius? As I mentioned, I've I've talked to a lot of companies that start either as a therapeutic developer and and, and get into uh, developing machine learning platforms, or or vice versa. Um, what are you? Is is Lab Genius a platform developer? Is Lab Genius a, a drug discoverer? Uh, is Lab Genius a biopharma company? Is it all of the above? Yeah, I, I would I would kind of approach this from what, what are the outcomes we're looking to deliver? I mean, ultimately, we want to create better therapeutic molecules. So that's the goal of the business. Um, now, now, it just so happens that that we think that the way in which that, that we have to get there um, is is by applying machine learning to, to some of these, um, these very difficult problems. Um, and specifically, we're interested in the problems that you can't solve using conventional uh, conventional methods. Because I should say from the outset, that there are a lot of problems in drug discovery that you absolutely do not need to apply advanced computational methods and machine learning to. And, and often you do see, because there's so much heat and hype around machine learning, uh, I also see a lot of the, the sort of the, what I would call the misapplication of some of these methods, mm. you know, applying machine learning to, to areas in, in which, you know, to be honest with you, it doesn't provide a huge amount of value. Mm. Um, and and that, that's actually especially the case in biology. Because often the knee-jerk reaction thing to do, if you're kind of you know leaning in from a machine learning angle, is to say, okay, where are the data sets? And and the data sets are often linked to the assays which you can already run at high throughput. And of course, where you can already run an assay at high throughput, often you can brute force the solution itself. Um, and so and so there is actually there um, uh, an interesting trap that I think a lot of companies can fall into, where they say, hey, look, I want to apply machine learning to drug discovery. Where are the data sets? And then they get pulled into to trying to solve a problem that's already been uh, solved. Mm. So we're yeah. really very much interested in solving the the, the challenges of protein engineering, protein engineering challenges that can't be addressed by the conventional methods. And specifically, the one that we're most interested in right now um, is, is through the development of, of sort of novel uh, a multi-specific antibody, specifically uh, immune cell engagers, where we're really trying to engineer these molecules by pulling all sorts of levers in parallel that, that relate to the design of the molecules to better um, design them such that they're able to distinguish between healthy uh, and disease cells and ultimately ad address the issue um, uh, of, of, of on-target, on off-tumor tox. Yeah. So is, is that resulting in uh, in a development pipeline at, at Lab Genius, or is it yes. resulting? Yeah, okay. So, so we're seeing some very interesting molecules uh, uh, come out of uh, out of some of our programs. Um, and one thing that I would really kind of, I guess, call out is is that the thing that gets everybody here really, really excited is a lot of the molecules that come out of this process, this machine learning driven process, are not molecules that, as a rational uh, through rational-based human engineering, you would have designed designed yourself. Hmm. Uh, and, and, and the reason that's so exciting is, you know, I think drug discovery um, augmented by machine learning has the potential to be faster, be cheaper, but, but most excitingly, it, it has a potential to be truly en enabling. And it's enabling in instances where the actual output, the actual result, the new molecules that that, that, are, that are generated are those that are uh, that wouldn't have been uh, obtained through through any other method. Um, and the reason that we're that we're able to do this um, is that historically, if you're only able to say 
use conventional methods to evaluate a small number of antibody designs, you play it safe. You say, okay, I, here are ways in which I know I can combine these components. And I'm pretty sure I'll be able to make the molecule. I'm pretty sure the molecule will, will work as I'm predicting. And maybe you get, I don't know, very, very best case scenario, you can test 500 to 1,000 of these molecules in these really complex cell-based assays. The advantage of our approach uh, is that we can evaluate up to 28,000 of these molecules in these very disease-relevant cell-based assays. And we do that in such a way, in this kind of iterative, uh, cyclical way, with every cycle, the machine learning algorithm is pulling us through the design space and, and learning how to better recombine the parts. So what you end up what ends up happening is, is that you get pulled into these regions of design space that as a rational human protein engineer, you would have never even thought of going into because it wouldn't it wouldn't make sort of rational sense, although we know precedent for it. Um, and that's the thing that I think is 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 most exciting about this sort of approach. Yeah, it's it's exciting. Uh, as I alluded in my in my brief intro, there there's a healthy degree of skepticism among you know what you would sort of describe as uh, rational scientific thinkers around machine learning. Uh, you know, you, you introduce something un unconventional to them and and show them something that that unconventional thing produced that is irrational to what they know. Uh, you know, I, I guess maybe it's human nature to to push back on that a little bit. Do you experience any 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 pushback? Um, or, or yeah, and what, know, health, healthy skepticism what, I mean, in the early days of lab genius actually we had a huge amount of internal skepticism and it was fascinating because uh the the you know we the, the way that the process works is is you set a design space and that initial design space is set by a collaboration between the data scientists and and, and the protein engineers and then and then the algorithm says here are your first set of designs that you should test and the human protein engineers look at those and they say, why on earth are you wasting like very precious resource in the lab testing these things? We could tell you for reasons X, Y, and Z that those molecules are never going to work. And mm -hmm. you know what? Sometimes they're right and sometimes they're wrong. But the difference here is that the algorithm, the process learns from every experiment that it conducts. And, and that knowledge is institutionalized in, in, a, in a way that when you run your next program, your next cycle, um, it doesn't make the same mistakes. And I think, I think that's the... Um, that's a really interesting interesting thing here, which is when you're taking this data-driven algorithmic approach, the algorithm specifically sometimes requests you to make designs um, uh, that a human protein engineer may say, you know, I don't think this is going to work. But the algorithm, what, 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 what it's doing is it says, here are areas of design space that I myself am uncertain about. I want to test these so I gain more information, more predictive ability there. And and again, this is the thing that is ultimately the um, the lever that we can pull that pulls us into these areas of design space where, yeah, the human protein engineers would say, you know, maybe I actually have no intuition around what's going to happen there. And we also often see that um, what I would call these rules of thumb uh, for sometimes they, they work, but in, in other programs, actually, the, if you apply the rule of thumb in terms of engineering these molecules, it breaks them. And I think that's where this very data-driven algorithmic approach uh, has a potential to, to really outperform uh, a human-level protein engineering. We know that early-stage biopharmas need support. Producing and scaling a biologic molecule is not easy. Companies with new or evolving programs need assistance every step of the way. Join us each week as we discuss all things emerging biotech, including regulatory, financing, and more. The pod is brought to you in collaboration with Cytiva, a global provider of technologies and services that advance and accelerate the development, manufacture, and delivery of therapeutics from idea to injection. Check out their resources at Cytiva.com backslash Emerging Biotech.
That's C-Y-T-I-V-A dot com backslash Emerging Biotech. How, how far down the path, you, you mentioned like, you know, the, the thought process might, process might be, well, that, that'll never work, you know, the, the human thought process. And then machine learning can can contribute to proving that human thought process wrong, uh, wrong and right. Uh, they wrong and right experience different degrees of, of relativity along the drug development continuum, right? Like it's a constant, constant experiment. Uh, so, so how far along would you say uh, lab genius is with some of its more promising molecules to, to proving them truly, truly right. And how do you assess that? Does that yes. question make sense? Yeah, it does. Absolutely. So how do you, how do you know whether these things are actually better? So yeah, for, as a, as a small um, uh, biotech, uh, we take, we take, we're obviously taking a lot of technical risk here. And mm. so the question is how, how do we limit the amount of risk that we're taking in on other fronts? And one of the ways in which we can limit risk, uh, is, is by reducing target risk. So we don't necessarily want to go after targets where there's a lot of, you know, novel biology that may or may not be proven out um, in the clinic. So, so we're actually privileged in the sense that we're going after very well validated targets, often where there are uh, uh, clinical benchmarks that we can draw upon and, and run head to heads with our molecules. And mm. that's typically what we'll use in any program where the molecular product profile that we're shooting for will have these cl- clinical benchmarks in, in, in mind. So we can certainly say for the molecules that, that are coming out of our uh, discovery process, they're beating those clinical benchmarks um, uh, with respect to the parameters that we think will make those molecules uh, certainly valuable and, and, and useful for, for, for patients. Yeah, very good. Um, can you speak yet at all to potential indications that that your molecules might uh, be well suited for? Yeah, I, absolutely. And and I think there's there's an interesting there's an interesting piece here that actually links right back to the machine learning. So. Whenever you set up one of these data generation platforms, it is such a heavy lift. It's so capital intensive, time intensive to onboard any assay, any set of experiments so that they can generate data at the requisite level for machine learning. You have to be really sure that this data generation pipeline, this engine that you've created, maps to multiple different uh, potential programs. You don't want to be setting up one of these engines where maybe it just addresses one particular problem. So, so we've had to think very carefully around uh, what are the right spaces uh, within the world of drug discovery where you can set up this pipeline and continuously run multiple programs through it without having to refactor the platform every, every time you do it. And that's why we were pulled into this area of thinking around how do you equip these molecules to differentiate between healthy and disease cells um, because ultimately that that boils down to the to the molecule being able to sample multiple receptors on a cell surface and effectively make a decision and so the area that made most sense for us uh, was was in the immune cell engager space and so all the the indication area we're most focused on um, is is of course oncology and mm-hmm. then uh, within oncology obviously i think you could apply this technique to 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 address multiple different types of cancers but we're most particularly focused on solid tumors. So uh, within that area, we're developing T-cell engagers that have been engineered so that they are much more selective in terms of their killing profile uh, for cancer cells over, over, over disease cells. Yeah, very exciting. It's, it's fascinating. Uh, I, I want to back up a, a little bit to sort of the, the founder story, which you alluded to. You know, you, you mentioned that where you were working on your PhD at ICL, um, the, the company's roots sort of started to, 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 to take take hold at that point. Um, 
And so the, the show, uh, we focus on new and emerging biopharmas and these, these stories about how companies form up are, are super instructive, right? And inspirational uh, to, to our audience. So tell us a little bit about that experience for you, your, your sort of academic into industry overlap and, um, you know, how, how that sort of directed the, the beginnings of Lab Genius. Yeah, I, I, I was, I was, um, uh, I guess entering the field at a, at, at a really um, exciting, but also sort of um, lucky time as well. So, I just finished my my undergrad uh, in biology and microbiology. I had uh, you know several jobs lined up in the city. It was just at the time that's what everyone did. You did your undergrad. Uh, if you're working, if you're studying in London, you then get one. You know. A, yeah, what kind of like just real quick there? Like, what, what sort of jobs did you have lined up coming coming out with your undergrad? Uh, what sort of what, what sort of jobs do graduates like you typically typically look at? Yeah, I mean, like most most grads go into finance or consulting or, or you know, like like a, a standard city job for for um uh, if, if you're at a London based university. Mm-hmm. And you know, I wasn't I wasn't particularly excited by any of those prospects, but it was just sort of the thing that you did. And yeah. then and then um. Uh, I took part in this competition called the iGEM competition or, or the International Genetically Engineered Machine Competition, which was basically um, uh, this really unique opportunity where uh, as an undergraduate, you're given a summer to do any research program that you want. And then you all go out to uh, to MIT um, to present your work. And, it, and it's this, this fantastic, as I say, international meeting of the minds um, for anyone interested in synthetic biology. And and that really sort of set me on this on this path of of hey actually there's something really exciting here. I'd gone from looking at biology as as a descriptive subject to actually something where you could start to engineer the substrate of life, and that and that that was you know really sort of uh, lit a fire up inside me. And then I had this um, this incredible mentor um, and professor at, at at Imperial College who said. Uh, you know, it looks like you had fun at that iGEM competition. Um, why don't you come and do a research master's? You can work on any problem you like. You can, you know, do whatever you like in the lab. Um, and that led into a PhD. So I was given these four amazing years of just sort of, you know, uh, messing around, doing experiments in the lab at the time when all of these breakthroughs were happening, like the cost of sequencing and synthesis was coming down. All of this robotic automation uh, was being installed, installed in the labs. And, and it just felt like this very opportune moment. Where it was very clear to everyone that that protein engineering was currently very inefficient, but it had the potential to be transformed. And so, really, that was the impetus for me to kind of start start the business. And and as I say, you, you know, we just had an idea at that point, but but it was just at the right time because the UK government made this investment uh, in the translation of synthetic biology ideas. So they set up this incubator at Imperial. And again, I've gone through having the run of the labs for, for my PhD to be able to set up a free lab space in this incubator. Um, and it was really only sort of the confluence of those, those factors that allowed me to get the, the business off the ground. So a lot of, a lot of uh, founders and would be founders, in fact, come, come out of experiences like that with a whole lot of intellect and a whole lot of excitement uh, that doesn't necessarily equate to leadership of a, of a startup biopharma. How did you learn how to be a CEO? I think very slowly, um, <laughs> um, but but look to to be honest, the the the, the big inflection points in, in my personal growth journey have come through um, bringing experience into the team through experienced colleagues who are, who I learn a huge amount from every day, and through the mentorship of of, of our board and, and and probably you know one one of the the, the characters to to really kind of draw out and um, and and recognise is our chairman Edwin Moses who. 
um, built and, and sold a very successful business, um, Ablinx, which he which he he sold to to Sanofi, and that's one of Europe's greatest um, uh, recent exit stories. Um, uh, but has has subsequently mentored a huge number um, of founders and CEOs across the European biotech ecosystem. Um, and and I would say that's probably one of the relationships that that has been most valuable to my own personal uh, growth journey. And I would add that one of the really interesting things about building a business like this, and I say this to the team, is that every three months, it feels like a materially different company. Mm. And that might be because, you know, someone new, new has joined and they bring incredible sets of skills and experience. It might be because the markets just change from being, you know, a bull market to a bear market or vice versa. Um, or it might be because one of your programs has, has, has advanced and suddenly you, you need to be thinking of a whole new set of, set of considerations and challenges. Um, so I think it's one of the most exciting industries to be working in um, for that very reason. And, and really then, in terms of, I guess, equipping yourself to deal with that, it all comes down to adaptability. Can you continually learn and grow every three months as you're effectively getting a new job, or at least that's what it feels like? Yeah, I mean, that can present challenges in, in and of itself. I mean, that can present a major challenge as the leader of a, of a business that is rapidly changing, you know, so rapidly changing. Um, you know, that, that can be tough for for employees to to embrace. Like you, you may be willing to embrace it, but it might be tough for your organization to embrace a constant rate of change and feeling like it's a new company all the time. How do you, how do you manage that? Like, how, how do you keep the team paddling in the same direction when it seems like the currents are always changing? Yeah, it's, it's, that, that, that is undoubtedly a challenge, especially when you're trying to, to bring together uh, folks who, who, who come from very different backgrounds and they come into the business with their own set of um, experiences and expectations. So, you know, Folks who 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 have who have worked for big tech companies, uh, uh, you know, experiencing one type of working environment, to other folks straight from you know the academic labs, and other folks from from biotechs, and and every one of those people comes with a very you know a different different history and, and different expectations, um, and and I think the reality here is the best way to to um, provide some stability um, and 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 uh, consistency to a team um, is to be really really clear about what your corporate goals are um, mm. that, that that's only in terms of from a delivery perspective you know everybody comes in and your corporate goals don't change you know you, that's that's your that's your north star but but probably more importantly there are the culture aspects as well um and 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 i think i think you have an opportunity there to to define not only the values but also the mindsets that you expect from from your team and, and what what each member of the team should expect from each other as well and and again if you can get that right and set set that um, set those expectations. Um, then again, that's that's the ballast that gives your team confidence in a in an ever changing changing world, especially now where there's so much uncertainty around you know what's the, what's the space doing the financing environment, inflation, etc. Uh, yeah. Is really important to, to to try and create that that kind of consistency. And I would I would uh, I would posit that it's more important in a company like yours that is doing uh, you know seemingly. Ir irrational, uh, at least we'll say non-conventional, un unconventional things. Um, and, and you've you've mentioned a, a couple of times uh, in in recent responses the capital markets and the investment community. Um, what's the appetite from the invest investment community specific to ML in in biotech? I know you know if you go to Silicon Valley, like you know th there might be a, a great big giant appetite for machine machine learning startups in, in biopharma. You know, I mean, maybe maybe it's a little more tepid. I don't know. You tell me. What what have you found? Sort of the the, the appetite for machine learning based startups 
in the space and and do you see maybe some change some some yeah i think there was this huge influx in, of, of capital in, in into the area a couple of years ago a lot of mm-hmm. non-sophisticated investors um mm-hmm. coming in play, play, placing bets um and and the market has changed significantly now so i think actually um it, it's changed mu- very much for the better because a lot of those investors who who made their initial bets a couple of years ago have now got either were really smart to start with have got really smart or they've left so so you're now pretty much the investors who are still investing in the space you know they absolutely know what they're talking about they've a lot of them have the scars uh from from where they've made bets that that haven't worked and they've equally you know have the pattern recognition for for backing the businesses that that do really work and and enables you to have a much more informed conversation about the type of business that that you're building because you know the reality here that you and I know that a lot of the value um, in this space is of course locked up in the molecules and it's not the case that you can sort of march straight in and say hey we're going to build this whizzy new machine learning tool and scale it in the cloud and then you know we're, we're all going to be millionaires it's the case that this is a long-term process we're going to we're going to ultimately find new molecules and and the process of finding and, and developing new molecules takes time it takes capital um, and i think the, the 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 investors that are remaining in the space now um, uh, are very attuned to that um, and and then that gives you as a business the opportunity to have a much more uh, informed discussion uh, with any prospective investor um, about the journey that you're going on as well. Yeah. Have you um, uh, on you know in the in the investment community have you noticed or or picked up on any any trends in terms of the types of investors or the you know geographies of investors perhaps who are um, more interested than others in investing in machine machine learning based startups. Yeah, so I think the well, I certainly, if we're just looking at machine learning based startups, the industry as a whole, you know, machine learning is transforming every industry, and so and 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 I would say that that there are there are pools of capital opening up, you know, across across the world. Certainly, where everything used to be concentrated, you know, in a few hubs, mostly in the U.S., those firms are either starting. Uh, uh, in, in, in certainly in our back, backyard, London-based offices, or you have homegrown firms uh, that, that are popping up in the space as well. So I would certainly say there's less of a geographical restriction than maybe you would have seen sort of five or six years ago. Yeah. Um, specifically within the, uh, the, 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 I guess, the biotech space, um, what's really interesting is that um, some of the most sophisticated investors that that I've seen are actually coming from the um, uh, the pharma companies themselves, in the sense that uh, uh, every pharma company now, you know, has its own machine learning, has its own AI strategy. They they've been working on this for some time, making you know, in, in many cases, very very large internal bets uh, on their own capabilities. Um, and as a consequence, their venture teams have been able to kind of really get in deep there, understand again what works and what doesn't work. Um, and you have some exceptionally smart folks in some of those teams as well. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very interesting. Um, you, uh, I, I, I took note, uh, coming into this interview of the fact that you're an angel investor yourself, which is, which is interesting to me. Uh, you've, you've got the perspective of, you know, someone who's looking for money and, and someone who's investing. Um, tell us a little bit about how that sort of informs your, your fundraising strategy and your investment strategy at, at lab lab genius. Yeah. So I would say, you know, the, the background to that really is that building a company is, is, uh, you know, it's a very, very painful experience. Um, uh, it's and it's very challenging. Um, but and 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 the main reason for for wanting to um, invest in companies is really where I feel like I have a good connection with uh, the founding team and and hope to be able to 
um, uh, at least share share some 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 pain and and, and hopefully um, uh, some learned experiences there as well. Yeah. Um, typically, the, the 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 types of folks that that I invest in are are folks who are operating in the therapeutic space and typically who I've known for, um, for 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 several years. And it's been really interesting after you know make, making a, a few investments over the years, what, watching which of those companies really accelerates um, and and which are the ones that that may, maybe are moving a little bit slower. And I would certainly say, I can take some of those those learnings myself back to back to my work at Lab Genius, and I think that 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 makes you know me a better CEO as well. And and I would say you know probably the 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 most important or consistent um, uh, sign of success is is that the companies and the founders who um, are most consistent in their in their um, the way that they tell their company story and their focus are the ones that that have done have done the best. And I think really that's a sign of there was this exuberance in the capital markets a few years back where investors were pushing companies to to do more. So they would say, right, grow the opportunity here by rather than doing one thing in a very focused way, do two or three things, et cetera. And those companies, those founders who remain very, very focused saying, okay, we're just going to ignore all of that noise. We're going to focus down and solve this one problem really well. Those are the ones that, that have done terrifically well. Um, and again, I think it's that continual reminder of focus, which you know, really is brought into uh, sharp focus by the current economic environment now. That is what is required, not only in a small startup, but across every organization. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. At the same time, your uh, your investment portfolio uh, l- looks pretty pretty diverse. Uh, another thing I took note of was your your investment in uh, Hoxton Farms, uh, which is interesting to me. Uh, you know, I'm I'm a, I'm a foodie, so Hoxton Farms, as I understand it, is is attempting to to create animal fat without the animals. Right? I mean, you you can certainly elaborate on that, but it, yeah, it, and they're one of my it's favorite, intriguing. They're one of my- yeah, one of my favorite teams, again, founded by a, a synthetic biologist, you know, really capable um, a, a leader and CEO. And and again, I think that the, the, initially the reason I was attracted to that company is, again, amazing founding team, people I, I really believed in. Um, but but what's really interesting in, in their company is it fits into this sort of broader thesis of the fact that, you know, biotechnology, our ability to, to engineer, engineer living matter, um, is not just obviously limited to the therapeutic space. That's a space that everybody obviously, you know, really, really focuses on. And it's where the most established uh, value is being created. But ultimately, it will touch every component of our lives. And I, I find the kind of the food industry kind of interesting, right? Because it's at this other absolute extreme where maybe in the pharma space, you know, cost of goods can be can be exceptionally high. In in the food space, your cost of goods has to be exceptionally low. And so from a kind of technical engineering challenge, that is a really fascinating challenge of, of, of how do you solve it? How do you make really high quality food grade uh, substance from, from some of these engineered cell lines? Um, and, and really that take, requires innovation, uh, both on the computational side, the bioprocessing side, um, and, and of course, within synthetic biology as well. So again, really fantastic team doing really excellent work. Yeah. Are, are there any other sort of interesting sort of uh, connected but ancillary investments that, that uh, you're involved in now? Or are they- Yeah. Well, again, there's like another company where I met the founder who, whilst he was actually also doing uh, the the iGEM competition, mm. uh, Fighter Form Labs, where they, you know, the, the premise of that company is how do you accelerate the engineering of, of, of crops um, using some of these synthetic biology techniques? And, yeah. and again, um, th- this is the applications are, are very broad, not only, you know, the food chain, but other areas as well. Um, but again, it's an interesting analogous story of, of somebody who, again, got really excited 
uh, by the iGEM competition, has founded their own business and is now doing amazing, you know, really transformative work. Um, and and that that I see is is a really consistent narrative a lot of, across a lot of the the, the synthetic biology startups that, that are in existence today. Yeah. Yeah. And it's all connected. It's interesting to, to, to me as well, because it's all connected, right? Like medicine and food uh, and health generally are, are inextricably linked. Is that, uh, is there a bigger ML at play here, Dr. Field, like a sort of a, a one kind of world health uh, mission going on in Dr. Field's brain? <laughs> well, certainly everything is connected, right? And, 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 and that not only goes um, as far as the opportunities that we have, but also the threats that we face as well. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you have issues. You have issues with food causing uh, uh, gr growing levels of obesity and 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 accelerating aging. That obviously, you know, then feeds into what are the things that we need to develop on on the healthcare side. And so, if we really want to make inroads into some of humanity's biggest challenges, you, I think you have to take an integrated approach and think about all of these things in parallel. Yeah. So, what's next for for Lab Genius? Uh, you know, we, we talked about, we talked about the technology. We got to, got our minds around that. We talked about sort of the, the roots of the, the, the potential for a, a clinical pipeline. Is that, is that like imminent on the horizon, like announcement or development of a, of an actual clinical this, pipeline or. This is, this is, you know, the next big challenge for us, which is we've built out this very exciting platform. We've got some really, really exciting molecules coming out of it. Um, but you know, that doesn't mean anything to anyone, especially patients, unless you can progress them. So, so, you know, I think the next phase for Lab Genius is keep our heads down, keep pushing, keep working, uh, progress those molecules towards, towards the clinic. Um, and again, that all takes time and, and money, but I feel like we've got the right team here to do this. And I'm personally very excited about that journey because as I say, every three months feels like you're, you're in a different company. And so the learning journey there is, is going to be phenomenal. So it's safe to say you're not looking for a new opportunity. I was going to ask you what's next for Dr. Field, but you you started a new company every three months. So there's every no need to go months. look for another job. Every three months. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's fascinating. It's awesome work that you guys are doing. I, I appreciate the, uh, the the insight and sort of the, you know, the, the glimpse into advance. I mean, what, what you guys are doing compared to a lot of the conversations I'm having with therapeutic developers who are, as I say, dabbling in machine learning, what you guys are doing is pretty advanced. Um, and I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you about it. Well, thanks very much for having me on on the show. As you know, this is one of my favorite podcasts. So you know, this is uh, this is a oh. opportunity for me. So thank you. Yeah, let's just make sure the audience knows. I didn't I didn't ask for that plug. That 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 was unsolicited. <laughs> I appreciate it though. <laughs> thank you, Doctor Field. Thanks very much indeed. So that's Lab Genius founder and CEO, Doctor James Field. I'm Matt Pillar, and this is the Business of Biotech, Doctor Field's favorite podcast. We're produced by Bioprocess Online with the support of Cytiva, whose support of new and emerging biopharma companies is on full display at cytiva.com backslash emerging biotech. If you like listening in on conversations like the one you just heard with Dr. Field, subscribe to the Business of Biotech podcast. Sign up for our newsletter at bioprocessonline.com backslash B-O-B. Also, be sure to leave us a review. Let us know how we're doing. And as always, thanks for listening.